Good morning. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Jonah. We'll be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 6. And while you're flipping there, I um, just want to give my word of welcome to you, if you and an adult director here, and tailgate enthusiast, if you've, as you've already heard. Um, I work with the youth here, and every Wednesday hang out with the 6th through 12th graders, and we have a good time, and we learn about the Bible. And so really thankful for the opportunity to be with you this morning uh, and to share God's word with you. So if you're there, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we engage our whole bodies and give our full attention to God's word. So listen, this is God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God... This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Let's pray and ask him to be with us during this time. God, our Father in heaven, you give us your word because you're a personal God, because you love us and you want us to know who you are. You want us to see your great deeds so that we might see our sin and our need for a Savior. And God, we are coming to you this morning distracted we have vacations on the horizon. We want to get to lunch on time. We are tired that we're struggling just to get here in the morning. And Lord, our tanks are on empty, and we're asking you for help. We need you to give us what we need to pay attention to your word. Lord, would you give us the attention, the stamina, whatever we need right now to hear your word? And in your word, would you point us to your son, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? And would we see him as more beautiful and lovely? And we ask this in his name. Amen. I'm going to share a little bit is if you went to my house and like grabbed the remote and turned the TV on and turned it to Hulu and looked at my like most watched things, you would say, Bailey, there's a lot of Gordon Ramsay in your Hulu. Like, what's up with that? And I would say... I love watching TV shows that involve Chef Gordon Ramsay. So Gordon Ramsay, if you don't know, he's a world-renowned chef, has a couple of Michelin stars to his name, and he has this show that I've been watching probably since I was a child. I spent lots of time in college instead of going to class watching the show, and it's called Kitchen Nightmares, which is a really dramatic name for a show that's not that dramatic. But Kitchen Nightmares is a show where Gordon Ramsay goes to restaurants that are failing with the attempt to help them turn the business around. That Gordon Ramsay loves the restaurant business, and he really wants to help turn restaurants around. So restaurants reach out to him, and they say, Gordon, everything's going wrong. I had to refinance my house. I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm going to lose the business. So he and his very Scottish self shows up to these American restaurants. And the problem that most of these restaurant owners faced when they encountered Gordon Ramsay 
is that it's a really painful experience for Gordon Ramsay to come into your restaurant and to fix things. And that's first because Gordon Ramsay comes in for lunch and he's going to walk in the restaurant and he's going to make fun of the decor. Like he's going to ruthlessly tell you that it looks like your grandma decorated the kitchen. He's going to sit down, he's going to talk to the waiter or the waitress, and he's going to ask them if they actually like being there, if they get paid well, if they get paid their tips. And then Gordon will order five or six items off the menu, and he'll take a bite of each, he'll spit it out, he'll probably curse, right, so don't let your kids watch, and then he'll send it back to the, he'll send the food back to the kitchen and say, tell the chef that this is atrocious. And then later that day, Gordon observes a dinner service. He puts on his white chef's jacket and he just kind of walks around and he sees how dysfunctional things are. Then he'll sneak into the cooler and he'll find all the health code violations, all the rotten and spoiled food, all the bugs, and he gets really angry, right? So at the end of the night, this is like day one, this is a couple days that the show takes place in. He'll gather the whole team that work at the restaurant together and he'll tell them straight up what's wrong. That he'll look at a chef who's cutting corners and he'll say, you're uninspired and you're lazy. Like you shouldn't even be called a chef. He'll look at a restaurant owner and he'll tell them they're clueless. And what Chef Gordon Ramsay does in this show is to show restaurant owners the problems that they've caused with their neglect, that they have to face the consequences of what they've done. Because these people are forced to see what they've done and take responsibility for it for the first time. But in this, when these restaurant owners see what they've done and they express, I want to change and I need help, Chef Gordon Ramsay will go above and beyond their wildest dreams and being gracious to them and turning their restaurant around. All because they've seen what they've done, they've taken responsibility for it, and they want to change. And what we see with Chef Gordon Ramsay, I would submit to you, is just a small reflection of what is going on today in the book of Jonah. That this morning, we're looking at the events that are caused because Jonah fled from God. And what we see is how God is responding to Jonah's rebellion. That God doesn't let, just let Jonah go, but he goes after him. And God shows mercy to Jonah and to these mariners by showing Jonah his sin, by showing everyone on the ship that they need mercy. And in the same way, he shows sinners like you and I the same mercy. So because God is merciful, we should cling to his mercy. We should cling to his mercy like it's our only hope, because it is. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Um, if you've got a handout, if you're a note taker, this is for you. That mercy pursues us, mercy wakes us up, and mercy is our only hope. That's mercy pursues us, mercy wakes us up, mercy is our only hope. Let's dive in. Verse 4 says this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. A tempest is a storm. Um, if you didn't know that, so that the ship threatened to break up. And if there's any word in this verse I want to zoom, on, zoom in on, it's the first word. It's a conjunction. It's but. And notice how this works, that verse 4, because it starts with this, this but, it shows us that what happens in verse 4 is 
fully in response to what happens before in verse 3. In verse 3, even though we didn't read it, just to fill you in if you weren't here last week, verse 3 tells us that Jonah disobeyed God and he set sail for Tarshish instead of Nineveh to flee from God. And so verse 4 shows the consequence that Jonah receives for his actions. And since Jonah fled from God's presence, God hurled a great and mighty wind upon the sea. And in this wind, Jonah and the mariners experience the consequences of Jonah's sin. That Jonah thinks he can run away from God. And God sends this wind, and he's really saying, no, Jonah, you can't run from me. I'm coming after you. Jonah thinks he doesn't have to obey God. And God in this wind is saying, you absolutely have to obey me. And this mighty storm shows us that God doesn't let his children disobey without consequence. But instead, he chases after them when they run away. That he loves us and he doesn't let us remain in our sin. But instead, he shows us the depths of our sin through these consequences. And he does this so his children might turn away from their sin and turn back to him. And God allows Jonah to experience these consequences so that he might see his sin for what it really is. That Jonah might see that his sin is ugly, that it's filthy, that it's harmful to him and to everyone around him, that he's enslaved by it. But more than just seeing it, this is so Jonah will see it and turn away from it, that he will turn back to God in repentance. And I think we get this to some extent when we talk about how sin has consequences and we should see these consequences of our sin as a wake-up call of sorts. That God uses these sinful consequences or these sin-caused consequences rather to open our eyes. Here's some examples. This first one is inspired because Liz and I watched Happy Gilmore recently. If you remember, think of Happy Gilmore, grandma, right, early in the movie, Happy goes to his grandma's house, and they're selling everything, and they're selling the house. And he's like, Grandma, what's wrong? And she says, she starts to talk, and this tax guy walks in and says, your grandma hasn't paid her taxes in 10 years. And she's like, the government will come and take your stuff, right? Or if you cheat on your taxes, you're going to get charged with tax fraud. And when you get served those papers, you would hope that getting those papers in your hand would wake you up and cause you to see where you've sinned. Let's take another example. Let's say you treat your kids harshly, that you're unashamedly angry towards them, you're bitter, you're not gracious, you're unloving. If this is how you treat your kids, one day when they're grown, there's a good chance that they would cut you out of their lives. And you would sit alone on maybe a birthday and you would feel the consequence of your sin and realize that you need to. In both of these scenarios, we would hope that when we see the consequences of our sin, that we would be woken up to it, that we would see it and have to wrestle with it. And ultimately that we would see our sin and we would repent, that we would turn away from it. So God lets us experience the consequences of our sin in order to pursue us. And he pursues us in our rebellion. And because he does this, we should learn to recognize when the hardships and the trials... We and I want to be really clear here before we hop into this. Because many of you have gone through trials and hardships and had suffered things 
that quite frankly, I couldn't even fathom. And so much of our suffering is caused not by our personal sin, but because we live in a world affected by sin, that we live in a world that's fallen, that's broken, that suffering happens. But what I'm talking about here is completely different. That we suffer often because we make sinful choices and we suffer the consequences of those choices. And what we need to learn to see is how these sin-caused consequences in our lives, we need to learn to see these consequences in our lives. And we need to understand that God uses them to pursue us, to show us our sin and show us our great need for a Savior. So think of it like this. If your marriage is struggling, let's say that's a trial you're going through right now. What we have to do in this scenario, what you would have to do is to ask yourself, if you're counting your spouse as more significant than yourself, or are you living selfishly? If you hate your job, if you go into the office or on the job site every day complaining, hating your job, then you might have to ask yourself, am I working so I can hit it big, so I can have that beach house so I can have nice things? Or am I using the talents and abilities and gifts that God gave me, and I'm, am I taking those to glorify God? Are you unhappy? Do you feel like you're never satisfied, that nothing is ever good enough for you? If that's you, like we have to ask what we're looking at to satisfy us and ask, are we looking at Jesus as enough? Are we looking at someone, someone or something else to fill that hole in our heart. So not only should we recognize the consequences of our, from our sin and repentance, that we should confess our sin and in that receive the forgiveness and grace found in Jesus, and we should rest in that forgiveness and in that grace. And we need to see that this is God pursuing us when we see the consequences of our sin, like a father who chases after his child who's running away from him. That in his mercy, God uses our sin and its consequences to open our eyes and to show us that we need to be reconciled to him. So Jonah, in, in verse 4, or in verse 4 through 6, rather, Jonah should see this storm and know that God sent this storm, that it's God who's chasing after him. And he should be turning away from his rebellion and repentance, but he doesn't. But God doesn't stop there. That God doesn't just step in and show him his consequences of his sin and show him his need. But God takes it a step further and he wakes Jonah up. And in his mercy, God wakes us up. That's our next point. So the storm is raging. The mariners fear for their lives. And they start crying out to their pagan gods. And they begin taking the cargo on the ship and throwing it into the sea hoping to lighten the load that they might you know, be able to weather the ship. And what we're seeing here, there's a lot of irony going on because these mariners first know that it's God or this is a supernatural storm because they're, they're mariners, right? They're sailors, they spend time on the water, they're storms. They've seen bad storms and they've probably never reacted like this. But they see this storm and they know it's different. They know it's supernatural and we see that because they're crying out to their pagan gods for help. But here's the irony, is that while these pagan mariners are crying out to their false gods, 
Jonah goes into the inner part of the ship and he lays down and he takes a nap. That God's prophet, the guy who's running from God, should be the one that's crying out to God. And he knows that it's God who sent the storm, but Jonah ignores it. That Jonah should be responding to this storm in the same way that these mariners are responding. That he should be crying out to God for mercy. But instead, Jonah goes into the boat and he goes to sleep. And what this does is this paints a picture for us and it highlights something that we can fall into just as easily as Jonah. We can see the consequences of our sin and we can choose to ignore them. We can become comfortable in our sin and uh, we can sleep on it, so to speak. And because God is merciful and he's going to have mercy on Jonah, he doesn't just allow Jonah to remain in his sin and to kind of willfully blind himself, right? He sends the storm, but he also sends the captain to wake him up. That providentially, this ship's captain wakes Jonah up and he makes him face the storm. He makes him face the consequences of his sin. He's making him face his sin just itself. And we see this play out in a number of ways in Scripture. And one of my favorite, this is my favorite story in the Old Testament, and I think it's a great kind of connection here, is in 2 Samuel 12, we see God waking David up to his sin. So if you're not familiar, in 2 Samuel 11, we read about David and his just really heinous sin against Bathsheba and how he tries to cover it up by having Uriah, who is the husband of Bathsheba, killed in battle. So David does it. He thinks that he's washed his hands of the situation. And 2 Samuel 11 ends by saying God was displeased with David. So time passes. And we don't know how much time. And God sends Nathan, who is a prophet, to confront David. So Nathan goes to David and tells David the story of a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had many flocks and many herds. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb. And this lamb lived with the man, it grew up with his children, it ate from his plate, it drank from his cup, and it says that it was like a daughter to him, this little lamb. So as Nathan tells the story, he says, one day a traveler comes to the rich man, and the rich man doesn't take one of his own sheep or one of his own flock to prepare for the man. Instead, he takes the poor man's beloved little ewe lamb. And so David is hearing this, right? King of Israel, the highest judge in Israel, and he's fuming. He gets angry when he hears this. And David says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. And after hearing this, after hearing God's rebuke through Nathan, David sees that he has sinned, that he has sinned against the Lord. And God uses Nathan to wake David up after David was willfully blind to his sin. And this is the same thing that we're seeing here in the story of Jonah, that the captain is just like Nathan, that he serves as a providential wake-up call for Jonah, that Jonah is forced to see his sin. But Jonah would rather be at the bottom of the boat, in the dark, blind to his own sin. And we're just like him. We need God to flip on the lights and show us our sin. 
We need him to wake us up when we're comfortable. We need him to show us all that we've done to disobey and how we run from God in the same way. But the good news is that God is abundantly merciful. And he wants us to see our sin. And he wants to see our need to be reconciled to him through our Savior, Jesus. And because God wakes us up when we're comfortable in our sin, I'd submit to you that we need to learn to love the fact that he wakes us up when we're sleeping in our sin. First, I think that means we need to wrestle with the fact that we are all probably sleeping on a sin, that we're all willfully blind, that we see the consequences, we know it's out there, and we get into the bottom of the boat and we want to take a nap. We want to act like it's not there. Think about this, maybe. Is it lust? Lust is a really easy sin to hide, often because it, it happens in our brain, like between our ears, that it doesn't come out, that, we, that people don't know about it. Because we can be out and about and look at someone and evaluate them based off the sum of their parts, we'd say, and no one would ever know because we would never tell anyone. But with this, do you think that since no one knows that you can continue in that sin? If you think it's not affecting anyone, it's just my little thing that no one knows about, do you think that means you can continue? Maybe it's anger, right? Maybe you are only visibly angry to your spouse and to your kids in the confines of your home. And you think, as long as I don't lose my cool at like a church potluck or when I'm shopping at JCPenney's, then no one will know that I'm angry. Do you think that? But more than just seeing this sin and just wrestling with it, we need to love the fact that God is a good father who wakes us up when we're sinning. And it's because God doesn't just allow us to feel the consequences like we talked about earlier. He does that. But more, he takes a further step that he shows us very clearly often our need for a savior because we're so sinful. So maybe today this is your wake-up call to know that God sees your sin and he's moving towards you and wants you to turn away from it and to turn towards him. But loving the fact that God wakes us up in our sin means we have to be open to that fact. And this is what that means. We both need to call our brothers and sisters to repentance when we know they're sinning and when we know that they're blind to it. And even more, we need to be willing to take that rebuke from our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are sleeping on our own sin, when we're blind to it. So God in his mercy moves towards us to wake us up to our sin. And what this does ultimately when we see the consequences of our sin or if God takes it a step further and wakes us up is that this shows us that we desperately need God's mercy, that mercy is our only hope. So, so far, we've mostly focused on Jonah. And I want to I shift our focus just for the next few minutes on the mariners in this story. That they're fearing for their lives in the midst of the storm. They're crying out to their gods. And they're desperately in need of mercy. And going on to the backdrop, I want you to remember that Jonah is fleeing from God because he knows that God is merciful and he doesn't want God's mercy to be extended to the Ninevites, these people that he would consider dirty 
and pagan and undeserving. And so Jonah being sent on this mission to show mercy to Nineveh, we're watching Jonah try to stop that from happening. But while that's going on, we're still seeing God being abundant in his mercy and showing mercy to people who were far off, who were pagan, who Jonah would say don't deserve this. And we see that by looking at the mariners, that they're these same kind of people as the Ninevites. Our first reaction, if we're in a sticky situation, is to figure things out ourselves. I think that's a human response. And that's what the mariners are doing. That they're in this storm, they realize this is crazy, we're not going to survive this. And they start crying out to their gods, they throw their cargo overboard, all to fix the problem. But it doesn't work. And instead, this captain wakes up Jonah and tells him to cry out to his God. And what we're seeing when they wake Jonah up is that the last thing they have to try is to wake up this Hebrew guy who's sleeping in the ship and have him cry out to his God. We're seeing people who come to the end of themselves, that they're scared. And all they know to do is to hope that God the God of Jonah would be merciful to them, that, would, that God would give them a thought. The mariners are experiencing the consequences of Jonah's sin with him, and what they're seeing is that mercy, God's mercy, is their only hope. Think of it like this, to put it in like a more concrete example. Think back to your childhood, and if you're a child in here, you can just think like you're a child. It's easier for you. There was probably a time where you messed something up and whatever you did, you probably tried to cover it up in some way. So here's an example. Like, you know, imagine this with me. Imagine you're a kid, you're in your living room, you know, mom and dad are somewhere else, you might have a friend over or a sibling, and roughhousing ensues, and you put a hole in the drywall. And you start just losing your mind. Like, what am I going to do? I put a hole in the drywall. You didn't even know you could put a hole in the drywall, and that was a bad way to find out. And so the first thing you do is you think, I'm going to hang a picture over the hole in the wall. And so you start looking for a picture around the house, and then it hits you. I'm eight years old, and I can only hang this thing three and a half feet off the ground. And it's going to be really suspicious to see like a random picture very low on the wall, right? So you think, no, 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 it's not going to work. Then you think, I'll rearrange the furniture. If I move the couch over this, no one's going to know. But then you think, I'm eight years old, and if I rearrange the furniture, one, it's not going to look good. And two, an eight-year-old moving a couch is suspicious, right? I'd have a lot of questions um, if I experienced that. So you get to the point, right, where you realize nothing I can do to fix this is going to work. And so you realize that you have to call mom or dad into the room and hope that when you tell them what happened, that they would be merciful to you. That your only hope and getting out of the situation in one piece is that they would be kind and merciful with this accident that happened. These mariners have seen the power of God firsthand in this storm. And when they encountered God, they found out very quickly that their only hope is that God would have mercy on them. And while they tried to fix it themselves, they couldn't. That the only way that they will survive that they will be spared as if God, the true and living God, would give them a thought that he would spare their lives. 
But what the mariners don't know right now in this, in this part of the story is that they're encountering a God who is abundantly merciful. And that is God goes after these pagan mariners as well. And what we see with these mariners, and they're crying out to God and their hope that God would have them mercy, or that God would give them mercy, this is just a small, small taste of what God is going to do later in Jonah when Jonah actually makes it to Nineveh. That God's mercy is freely given and his desire is to be merciful. And when we come to the end of our efforts, when we come to the end of our rope, so to speak, we realize that it's the only thing we can hope for, that God's mercy is the only thing that we could hope for. And that means that you and I have to cling to his mercy because it's our only hope. That we have, when we face our sins, we don't have to fix ourselves. That we don't have to pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. We don't have to do more good deeds to earn God's favor. And that's good news because we can't earn God's favor. We can't just will our hearts into changing. We can't just muster up obedience to God's word deep with to do is to cling to God's mercy. We have to believe what God tells us in his word. Like Psalm 103 tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And what we have to do believing what God says about himself is true is that we have to confess our sin. We have to turn back to God, trusting that God delights in being merciful. And we have to see our sin for what it really is, that it's wicked, that it's filthy, that it enslaves us. But when we see our sin for what it truly is, we can see God's mercy that he extends to us in Christ as beautiful, as loving, as something that frees us. When we see the consequence of our sin and when God wakes us up, the only thing we can do is cling to God's mercy, to trust that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So wrestling with God's mercy, it forces us to see what's true about ourselves. And we're going to land the plane here. So if you've checked out, this is a great time to hop back in. What's true about us is this. We're sinners that our hearts long after things that we think are more worthwhile than God. We think that we know better than what God's word tells us. We think human progress trumps divine revelation. And because we're sinners, because we break God's law every day, we in no way deserve mercy. We deserve wrath. We deserve God's good displeasure. But in his love for us, God came to earth and he came to live the life that we have not lived, a life that was free of sin. And Jesus committed no sin and he died on the cross like a sinner. He died in our place. And in that, he took all of God's wrath. He drank the full cup of it. So when we place our faith in him, what we receive is his righteousness, that God has mercy upon us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And when we place our faith in Jesus, trusting that he is the only one who can reconcile us with God, 
He unites himself to us, that he identifies with us, and he sympathizes with our weakness, and he gives us his spirit. And the Holy Spirit lives in us to show us our sin, that he shows us our sin and our great need for a savior. And through him, we become more and more able to die to our sin and to live in a way that honors God. The Holy Spirit allows us to become more and more like Jesus. So God, in his abundant mercy, not only spares us, but he blesses us in Christ. And in Christ, we are called children of God, and we will be with God forever. So brothers and sisters, let's marvel at the fact that God pursues us in our sin because he loves us, because he's merciful. Let's let that truth sink into our hearts. And in his mercy, God not only spares us, but gives us new life in Christ. And he calls you daughter and son. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're thankful that you are merciful. You're slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love. And we're thankful that in Jonah that we get to wrestle with the fact that you're merciful, but not only wrestle with it, to delight in the fact that you save sinners like us. Lord, as we leave here today, would you use your word like a scalpel to do surgery on us, that we might see our sin, but ultimately that we would see your son, the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as the one who goes between us who saves us, that we can rest in him. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.